0: Section twenty two of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of Saint Luke, Volume two, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter thirteen, verses thirty one to thirty five. Times in God's Hands, Christ's Compassionate Words About Jerusalem. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Luke chapter thirteen, verses thirty one to thirty five. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye, and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures to-day, and to-morrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk to-day, and to-morrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee! How often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and yet ye would not! Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, Ye shall not see me, until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. let us first learn from these verses how entirely our times are in god's hands our lord jesus christ teaches us this lesson by his reply to those who bade him depart because herod would kill him he said i cast out devils and i do cures to-day and to-morrow his time was not yet come for leaving the world his work was not yet finished until that time came it was not in the power of herod to hurt him until that work was finished, no weapon forged against him could prosper. There is something in our Lord's words which demands the attention of all true Christians. There is a frame of mind exhibited to us which we should do well to copy. Our Lord, no doubt, spoke with a prophetic foresight of coming things. He knew the time of his own death, and he knew that this time was not yet come. Foreknowledge like this, of course, is not granted to believers in the present day, but still there is a lesson here which we ought not to overlook. We ought, in a certain measure, to aim at having the mind that was in Christ Jesus. We ought to seek to possess a spirit of calm, unshaken confidence about things to come. We should study to have a heart not afraid of evil tidings, but quiet, steady, and trusting in the Lord. Psalm 112, verse 7. The subject is a delicate one. But one which concerns our happiness so much that it deserves consideration. We are not intended to be idle fatalists, like the Mohammedans, or cold, unfeeling statues, like the Stoics. We are not to neglect the use of means, or to omit all prudent provision for the unseen future. To neglect means is fanaticism and not faith. But still, when we have done all, we should remember that though duties are ours, events are god's we should therefore endeavor to leave things to come in god's hands and not to be over anxious about health or family or money or plans to cultivate this frame of mind would add immensely to our peace how many of our cares and fears are about things which never come to pass happy is that man who can walk in the lord's steps and say i shall have what is good for me i shall live on earth till my work is done and not a moment longer I shall be taken when I am ripe for heaven, and not a minute before. All the powers of the world cannot take away my life till God permits. All the physicians of the earth cannot preserve it when God calls me away. Is there anything beyond the reach of man in this spirit? Surely not. Believers have a covenant ordered in all things, and sure, the very hairs of their heads are numbered. Their steps are ordered by the Lord. All things are working together for their good. When they are afflicted, it is for their profit. When they are sick, it is for some wise purpose. All things are said to be theirs life, death, things present, and things to come. 2 Samuel chapter 33, verse 5, Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, Psalm 37, verse 23, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Hebrews chapter twelve verse ten, John chapter eleven verse four, First Corinthians chapter three verse twenty two. There is no such thing as chance, luck, or accident in the life of a believer. There is but one thing needful in order to make a believer calm, quiet, unruffled, undisturbed in every position and under every circumstance. That one thing is faith in active exercise. For such faith, let us daily pray few indeed know anything of it. The faith of most believers is very fitful and spasmodic. It is for want of steady, constant faith that so few can say with Christ, I shall walk today and tomorrow, and not die till my work is done. Let us learn, for another thing, from these verses, how great is the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ towards sinners. We see this brought out in a most forcible manner by our Lord's language about Jerusalem. He knew well the wickedness of that city. He knew what crimes had been committed there in times past. He knew what was coming on himself, at the time of his crucifixion. Yet even to Jerusalem, he says, How often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. It grieves the Lord Jesus Christ to see sinners going on still in their wickedness. As I live are his words. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11 Let all unconverted people remember this. It is not enough that they grieve parents and ministers and neighbors and friends. There is one higher than all these whom they deeply grieve by their conduct. They are daily grieving Christ. The Lord Jesus is willing to save sinners. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He would have all men saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, first timothy chapter two, verse four. This is a mighty principle of the gospel and one which sorely perplexes narrow-minded and shallow theologians. But what says the scripture? The words before us no less than the texts just quoted, are distinct and express. I would have gathered thy children, says Christ, and ye would not. The will of poor hardened unbelieving man, and not the will of Christ, is the cause why sinners are lost forevermore. Christ would save them, but they will not be saved. Let the truth before us sink down into our hearts, and bear fruit in our lives, let us thoroughly understand that if we die in our sins and go to hell, our blood will be upon our own heads. We cannot lay the blame upon God the Father, nor on Jesus Christ the Redeemer, nor on the Holy Ghost the Comforter. The promises of the gospel are wide, broad, and general. The readiness of Christ to save sinners is unmistakably declared. If we are lost, we shall have none to find fault with but ourselves. THE WORDS OF CHRIST WILL BE OUR CONDEMNATION. YE WILL NOT COME UNTO ME THAT YE MIGHT HAVE LIFE. JOHN chapter 5, VERSE 40 Let us take heed, with such a passage as this before us, that we are not more systematic than Scripture. It is a serious thing to be wise above that which is written. Our salvation is wholly of God. Let that never be forgotten. None but the elect shall be finally saved no man can come unto christ except the father draw him john chapter 6 verse 44 but our ruin if we are lost will be wholly of ourselves we shall reap the fruit of our own choice we shall find that we have lost our own souls linked between these two principles lies truth which we must maintain firmly and never let go there's doubtless deep mystery about it our minds are too feeble to understand it now but we shall understand it all hereafter. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility shall appear perfectly harmonious one day. In the meantime, whatever we doubt, let us never doubt Christ's infinite willingness to save. Notes. Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. Verse 31. Then came certain, Herod will kill thee, it is thought by some that this message was an invention of the Pharisees, intended to alarm our Lord and stop his preaching, and that Herod never really intended to kill our Lord. Yet it seems impossible to reconcile this theory with the message that our Lord in reply sends to Herod in the next verse. It is more probable that Herod wished to make away with one whose ministry reminded him of John the Baptist, and who publicly testified that John the Baptist, whom Herod had murdered, was a prophet. He had probably expressed this wish publicly to his courtiers, and the Pharisees came to repeat it to our Lord, hoping that the report would silence him. Depart hence, or Herod will kill thee. This expression shows that our Lord was in Galilee at this time. We are expressly told, Luke chapter 23, verse 7, that Galilee belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. Let it be noted that the literal translation of the Greek here would be, Herod is willing, has a will, wishes, means, to kill thee. It is not a future tense merely. It is like, ye will not come to me. John chapter 5, verse 40. Verse 32. That Fox. This remarkable expression is variously interpreted. Some think that our Lord did not apply it to Herod at all, but to the Pharisee who brought the message, this, however, seems a very unnatural and forced application of the word. The most common opinion is that our Lord applied it to Herod himself in virtue of his office as a prophet. Whitby remarks To impose this ignominious name on Herod is not contrary to the command not to speak ill of the ruler of thy people. It is the office of prophets not to spare kings when they expose their offences. Jeremiah chapter one verse ten Christ, therefore, uses his prophetical power in giving this tyrant a name suitable to his actions compare zephaniah chapter 3 verse 3 ezekiel chapter 22 verse 27 maldonatus thinks that our lord purposely called herod that fox in order to show the pharisees how little he feared him one word of caution is needful the use of this expression by our lord is no warrant to christians to employ violent and contemptuous epithets in speaking of the wicked and especially of the wicked in high places. He that would use such language about his ruler as Christ used here about Herod, must first prove his prophetical commission, and satisfy us that he has a special mission from God. TODAY, AND TOMORROW, AND THE THIRD DAY This is a difficult expression, and one which has received three different interpretations. The expression in the next verse is only another way of saying the same thing some think that our lord meant three literal days bishop pierce says this and what follows to the end of the chapter seems to have been spoken about two or three days before jesus was crucified this seems a very improbable and unsatisfactory interpretation some think that by days our lord meant years according to the theory which makes prophetic days always mean years this again seems an unsatisfactory view According to it, our Lord spoke these words in the first year of His three years' ministry, yet it appears more likely that He spoke them in the last. Some think that this expression is indefinite and a proverbial form of speech, signifying merely a short space of time. I am yet a little while with you, and during that time I shall continue my work, notwithstanding Herod's threats, and at the end of that time, and not before, I shall be perfected, or finish my course by death. Similar modes of speaking occur in Hosea, chapter 6, verse 2, and in the marginal readings of Genesis, chapter 30, verse 33, chapter 31, verse 2, Exodus, chapter 4, verse 10, chapter 13, verse 14, Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 20, chapter 19, verse 6, Joshua, chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 4, verse 6, chapter 22, verse twenty-four, First Samuel, chapter 19, verse 7. I am disposed to adhere to this last opinion, as on the whole the most probable one. Major gives quotations from Euripides and Arian, which justify the interpretation of three days in a proverbial sense by the usage of profane writers. I shall be perfected. This is a remarkable expression. In the Greek it is in the present tense. The meaning seems to be, I shall be perfected by my death, I shall finish the work which I came to do. The same word is applied to our Lord in Hebrews chapter two verse ten and chapter five verse nine verse thirty three. I must walk. The meaning of this expression seems to be I must continue in the course I have begun, I must go on to use a common English phrase as I have hitherto. It is the same word which is used in Luke chapter one verse six, first Peter chapter four verse three, second Peter chapter two verse ten. Chapter 3, verse 3, Jude, verse 16. In each place it is rendered walk, and in each means maintaining a habitual course of life. It cannot be that a prophet, Jerusalem. This is a peculiar expression. The Greek word rendered, it cannot be, is only found here in the New Testament, and means literally, it is impossible. Yet it is clear that this cannot be our Lord's literal meaning, john the baptist to say nothing of other prophets did not die at jerusalem this sense must be as Euthymius and heinses maintain it would be an unusual thing an exception to a rule for a prophet to die in any place but jerusalem when i do die it will be at jerusalem but i am not there yet but in galilee veratius thinks that our lord meant it is not possible that i the great prophet foretold by moses can perish out of jerusalem this however seems very improbable Dirceus and a clarke say that a man professing to be a prophet could be tried on that ground only by the great sanhedrim which always resided at jerusalem verse thirty four o jerusalem etc this remarkable passage is found in st matthew's gospel matthew chapter twenty three verse thirty seven at the very end of our lord's ministry in almost the same words i cannot see any satisfactory explanation for this circumstance excepting that our lord must have twice used the same expression about jerusalem in the course of his ministry on earth to suppose that our lord was at the end of his ministry in this part of st luke's gospel is on the face of the narrative utterly improbable to suppose that st luke thrust in this remarkable saying about jerusalem at this particular point of his gospel out of its place and order and without any connection with the context is equally improbable i see on the other hand no improbability whatever in the supposition that our lord made use of this remarkable saying about jerusalem on two distinct occasions during his ministry i can quite understand that his mighty and feeling heart was deeply touched with sorrow for the sin and hardness of that wicked but privileged city and it seems to me both likely and natural that language like that before us would fall from his lips on more than one occasion. How often? I cannot think, as some do, that this expression refers to many visits which our Lord made to Jerusalem during his ministry. I rather refer it to all the messages and invitations which for many centuries he had sent to Jerusalem by his servants, the prophets. Would I, ye would not, the Greek word in both these phrases is stronger than appears from our English translation. It is literally, I willed, and ye willed not. Few passages in the Bible throw the responsibility of the loss of the soul so distinctly on those who are lost. I would, ye would not. Two wills are expressly mentioned, the will of Christ to do good, and the will of man to refuse good when offered. Let it be noted that our Lord does not say, Thou wouldest not but ye would not by this mode of speaking he makes it plain that he charges the guilt of jerusalem on its inhabitants the men and women who dwelt there and specially on the priests and scribes and pharisees who governed the city they were neither willing to be gathered themselves nor to let others round them be gathered they neither entered in themselves into the kingdom nor allowed others to enter christ was willing but they were unwilling we must be careful, however, not to confine, ye would not, to the scribes, Pharisees, and rulers. The verse which follows shows clearly that our Lord includes all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 35. Your house is left, desolate. These words mean, your temple, in which you glory, your holy and beautiful house, is now deprived of its glory. God has departed from it and has no longer any pleasure in it. Ye shall not see me until etc. The meaning of these words and the manner of their fulfilment are points on which commentators are not agreed. Some think that our lord refers to his own triumphal entry into jerusalem when he rode in upon an ass just before his crucifixion and the city met him crying hosanna. Some think that our lord refers to the approaching destruction of jerusalem when the fulfilment of all his predictions would oblige the jews to confess that he was the messiah bishop pierce says they will then remember what they did to me when i was among them and will acknowledge that i am the christ the person who came in the name of the lord accordingly Eusebius tells us that upon seeing that destruction vast multitudes came over to the faith of christ some think that our lord's words are not yet fulfilled and that they refer to the last times when the jews after the last tribulation shall look on him whom they pierced and believe at the time of his second advent in glory. I decidedly adhere to this last opinion. The triumphant entry into Jerusalem was a faint type, no doubt, of the honor which Christ will one day see in Jerusalem. But the Jewish nation, as a nation, never saw our Lord and honored him as the Messiah during the whole period of his first advent. But when he cometh with clouds, every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. Revelations chapter 1 verse 7 End of section 22